Well, thank you, everybody. Um, so many of you will remember on first Sundays we've been going, uh, we've been doing this series on the doctrines of grace. Um, the doctrines of grace are essentially the details of the gospel. And the idea here is that we're going to go piece by piece uh, through key aspects of the gospel so that we understand very clearly how this works. One of the things we've noticed is that in a lot of modern Christianity, uh, people haven't been grounded. Uh, there's been this idea in evangelicalism the last few years that like, well, let's just talk about the gospel, let's keep it at that, let's talk about, talk about details because details divide. Um, I want to tell you that God has revealed things that are very important. And the more understanding, the more clarity we have on the gospel, the less likely we are to fall into error. And so the ultimate goal here is that we have a grounded understanding of how the gospel works. One, so that you would be edified, and that you can have great hope and encouragement. And that two, as you share the gospel, you have laser focus, getting it right in the proclamation. So uh, a couple of key things here. Oh, if I can get this to work properly. Um, a couple of key things here we're going to go over in the doctrines of grace. First of all, when we talk about the gospel, we normally share it in kind of four key overview points of Scripture. You'll hear us talk about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We review this every time, right? Creation is the fact that God created everything. And since he created it, he owns it. We are responsible to God because he is the God of creation who made us. But we also know that we have fallen. Humanity has sinned and separated ourselves from God. So that's point two. And so when I share the gospel, which is this next point, I really ought to share the first two pieces so people understand why the gospel is important, right? So like God created us, we sinned and separated ourselves from God, and now we need a savior. Well, the gospel, the good news, is redemption. That Jesus died to pay our sin debt and rose from the dead to give us new life. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking very specifically about that, right? But we share these other points so that people understand, like, this is why the gospel matters. And then because of his redeeming work, we are being restored back to God. He is bringing about his new creation. It is good news, right? So when we talk about what is the gospel, keeping in mind that gospel simply means good news, so the good news is that Jesus died to pay your sin debt and that he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. Um, the gospel is not that God loves you. It's true. That's part of why the gospel exists. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that God has a really great plan for your life. Yes, it's true. God has a plan for your life. It, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died to pay your sin debt and rose from the dead to give you new life. That is the good news of the gospel. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, because every now and then people are like, well, isn't the gospel broader than that, and it's about God making the world better? And I'm like, that is an effect of the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died to pay your sin debt. We're clear, clear on that? And for this reason, Paul talks to Corinth, the church, in 1 Corinthians 15, and right around verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. In other places, he says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is what's central to everything. And hopefully you can tell every sermon we teach comes back to this in some way. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died to pay your sin debt. We will go into great details of theology. We will talk about the attributes of God. We will talk about um, the atonement today. We're going to great detail, but all of it comes back to this good news. Cool? Everybody's with me. 
This is all set up and preview. So today we're going to talk about what's called particular atonement. Um, you guys get intimidated at all when we talk about the word atonement. People are like, what does that mean? What's going on? We're going to talk about that. Um, so to get into that, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up something. We've got, uh, we got a catechism question that I think most of the kids have memorized. So I'm going to ask it. Kids, are you ready to answer it with me? You can read it if you want. Ready? How can we be saved? Institutionary atoning death on the cross. A couple of key things in there. Right on. Good job, kids. Substitutionary atoning death on the cross. So if you've had that memorized and you didn't know what it means, today you're going to have the opportunity to know what it means. So as we get into this talk about atonement, I've got four key things that I want us to remember. And if you forget everything else, please remember this today. First of all, when we talk about the atonement, I need you to understand that it is our sin that necessitates atonement. Atonement is not just some random thing that God does. He prepared an atonement because we sinned. We'll talk about this in detail in a minute. Second thing that's going to be really key, we're going to come back to it, that atonement requires a blood payment. You can't just be atoned by, you know, saying a rosary a certain amount of times or by doing some good works. There's got to be a shedding of blood or it's not atonement. Third, atonement is substitutionary. We'll talk about what this means. In fact, we're going to talk about how Jesus takes the penalty for sin, the wrath of God, and the death that was deserved is poured out on him. It's substitutionary in the sense that he subs in for us to take the penalty. More on that later. The last thing is that atonement is particular. This is the opposite of universalism. You're not just automatically saved because Jesus died. A payment had to be made specific to you or you're not saved. Cool? All right. Good news. If you believe the payment was made for you, we'll talk about that in a minute. All right. So very, very simple truth is that atonement means to make payment amends or reparations. Uh, an illustration I would use is, I don't know if you've ever been out to like to lunch with your boss. This happened to me once. I'm out to lunch with my boss and he's going to buy lunch for everybody. And then it comes time to pay and he has forgotten his wallet. I do think he really did forget his wallet. Doesn't have his wallet. Now, now he's incurred a debt. The food has already been eaten. The, the, there has to be some kind of thing to happen, otherwise he's going to be in trouble. So somebody in the party steps up and says, it's okay, I've got you covered. And so someone else makes the payment that he owed, covering for the mistake. Right? When we start talking about atonement, the word covering or payment or reparation is used. The idea is something is wrong, somebody has to cover for it. Everybody with me? That is atonement. We're going to talk about very specifically what it means. But the first point we brought up here is that it is our sin that necessitates atonement. We already did a whole talk on sin. I'm not going to go into great detail other than to just highlight the fact that this is a pretty serious thing. First of all, we see in Romans 5, it talks about how Adam sinned and brought death into the world. And so through Adam, all sinned. Like, if nobody else had sinned, Adam brought sin into the world, right? We're, we're already under sin because of Adam. But we have a sin nature that we've inherited from him. So guess what? We have all sinned. Romans 3.23 makes it clear that not only are you under Adam's sin, but you also sinned. Every one of us has sinned. And as a result, we have separated ourselves from God. Scripture uses the language, we've fallen short of his glory. Here's where it gets real tricky. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Of course, there's the good news is tagged on there. I can't avoid that. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? 
Don't gloss over that first phrase, that the payment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. This is why I need someone to atone for me, because I have sinned. It's like I've already eaten the meal at the restaurant, although this is such a weak illustration of it. Somebody's got to cover for me. Right? This is the situation. We have all sinned. There has to be a covering. So sin necessitates atonement. Everybody with me? You guys already, we already talked about that. You're good. Here's what's interesting. Atonement requires blood. Um, and this is the thing that if you're familiar with anything going on in progressive Christianity right now, this is the thing that the quote-unquote progressivists really hate. The idea that God, in his justice, would cause someone to die for their sin. Even more than that, that it's not just that sin is annoying to him. He hates it. He has wrath against it. God wants to pour out wrath on sin. Men, I will tell you, the progressivists hate this. Um, And it's interesting how it goes. And I don't know if you guys have heard this. If you've watched the movie uh, American Gospel Christ Crucified, it goes into this a little bit about how there are people coming along saying, ooh, doesn't it just sound mean? that God would, like, kill somebody over sin? And they'll say, isn't God, like, a loving dad? Isn't he, like, really sweet and kind and gentle? And I'm like, have you read Scripture? Um, Yes, he's kind and gentle. But, man, he destroys death. And I think of, like, I'm a father, and I love my kids. I punish them when they're in error. And I tell you what, if someone hurts them, then I got wrath, right? Then I want to cause somebody some real harm, right? And the language of Scripture is this very clear, God has wrath for sin, right? So more detail in a second, but uh, Tony Jones is one of these popular progressivists, and his language, I mean, he's a heretic, just to be clear, um, and his language is like, oh, couldn't God have just done it some other way? I mean, like, couldn't he have just, like, he didn't have to do this. If he's eternal and he's all-powerful, he could have done whatever he wanted to. He could have made, he could have made salvation happen another way. And he just essentially says, I just don't care what Scripture says, and this is what I'm going to believe, and that God did it another way. I want you to think about the fact, first of all, we go over this in Underground Seminary in in, uh, the Doctrine of God course. Yes, God is all-powerful, but he will only do what is in accordance with his nature. God is just. He is all-powerful, but man, his justice is brought together with his power. Fortunately, so is his grace and his mercy and his love. The idea is God is not going to do something that is against his nature. This, by the way, if somebody wants to ask a question like, can God make a rock so big he can't move? And the reality is no, because God is wise and perfectly wise. Like he's not going to do something that is internally contradictory. He is all powerful. He also has perfect wisdom. Like God's attributes go together. And so does this idea of his justice. And I tell you what, brothers and sisters, I'm glad he's a just God. I want him to punish sin. I want him to pour out his wrath on the wicked that are harming our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. But as soon as I think about that, I have to think about the fact that I'm also one who has fallen short of God's glory, and I deserve his wrath too, which makes this all the more serious. So what I'm going to do really quickly is address this issue of the need for a blood atonement. Quick couple of verses, by the way, we're going to be primarily in Hebrews 10 today, but I'm hitting some passages to lead up to that because Hebrews itself is talking about how all this stuff leads up to it. So in Leviticus 17.11, this is where God is giving very clear instruction on how payment is supposed to be made in the sacrificial system. And he says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You guys catching this? I mean, God is being very clear that like somebody's going to have to shed blood for this to work. right? Hebrews 9.22 reiterates this and says, Indeed, under the law, which by the way, Leviticus is the law. We talk about the Levitical law. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It doesn't just say without the shedding of blood, there's not much forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You cannot have forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. By the way, that's a bit of a euphemism for somebody has to die. It's not just that like you cut yourself and you bled a little bit. Somebody has to die. I just realized how gruesome this sounds, but it is. Um, maybe I should have had like a children's warning. It doesn't get any more graphic than that. Um, so without going into great, great detail, I'll just point out, we see atonement in the Old Testament carried all the way through. Um, the very first sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, what does God do? He makes a covering for them. He makes animal skins. By the way, both symbolizing the idea of I'm covering for you and also something had to die. This carries all the way through. We see in Genesis 4, remember Cain brought a, a, like a vegetable sacrifice that was not acceptable to God. Abel slays an animal and that is considered acceptable, right? You guys remember this? Because there had to be a blood sacrifice. God had already shown this is how you do sacrifice. Something has to die. Now in Genesis 4, when one brother wants to pretend there's another way, which by the way, a little side note, God tells us very clearly how he is to be worshipped. Don't go trying to think you can worship him some other way. Um, God's like, this is how it needs to be done. Anyway, we carry on through Genesis 8. Noah offers a sacrifice. Genesis 22, Abraham believes God. He is ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. And in a really interesting turn of events, God says, well, hold on, and here is a lamb. By the way, here you have a guy willing to sacrifice his son to pay for sin, which should tell us something that sure looks like pointing forward. To something, right? And then what does God do? He provides a ram as a substitute. Man, there is a picture of the gospel, but at the same time in that it's saying, this is not all the way it. It's pointing forward to something. All right? Anyway, we could go on through. Jacob offers sacrifices. We see in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, we already talked about, there's very clear language about sacrifice. The idea of a blood sacrifice atonement, the idea of a blood payment, carries all the way through the Old Testament and, by the way, into the New. The language of the Old Testament is this very clear, your sin is essentially being transferred onto this animal, which will be slain for you. There's no question about that. And so that brings us to Hebrews 10. Sorry, there was a lot. That was all preview. This is all like introduction. So think about, I don't know how long that took, but my sermon itself is not that long. Hopefully this helps. That was all introduction. So Hebrews 10, we're going to begin in verse 1. Um, a little side note on Hebrews. Hebrews is a wonderful book for explaining how everything in the Old Testament goes with everything in the New Testament. If you're wondering, like, how, hey, why, what is this, and why do we not do this sacrifice anymore? Why do, like, Hebrews explains it. I really wish there was more study of Hebrews. Uh, we tend to do a lot of Ephesians and Colossians. Hebrews is a great book. It explains a lot. It's wonderful. Hebrews is great. The whole Bible is great, but Hebrews is just one that it gets ignored too much. Anyway, Hebrews 10, I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. 
Interesting. Doesn't say the law is bad. It said it's a shadow of the good things that are coming. Um, is the shadow the thing, or is just kind of a image of the thing? Right? Like the shadow is not quite what it's about. It's just kind of an indication of something else that's there. Reading on. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they, otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. You guys catch that? Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Thanks, buddy. It is impossible. Let me reiterate this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hopefully you're following that, like, at no point did slaying a bull or a goat in the Old Testament actually pay for your sin. The idea was it's pointing forward to something. There's, it's pointing forward to Christ. There is an act of faith and an obedience that needed to happen, right? But notice the writer of Hebrews says, if this would have fixed it once for all, we'd have stopped doing it. It'd have been like, awesome, we did the sacrifice, done. It's completed, no worries, we're covered. But no, he says year after year, we made sacrifice. And he points out, this is to remind us of our sin. And also, as we already saw, it's a shadow of what is to come. It is pointing forward to something far greater. Everybody with me? Cool. So now, next verse, verse 5. It says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he quotes from Psalm 40, right here. He says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared, before, or you prepared for me. Uh, if you guys... Go back maybe after this, read Psalm 40. Uh, the idea is this like this body was prepared very specifically as a sacrifice. And so it's saying that like, hey, the sacrifices and offerings, that's not what God ultimately desired. Yes, he commanded it. Yes, he desired it in a loose sense. But that's not what he really needed to satisfy the debt that you owed for sin. He says, verse 6, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. This is, this is as if Jesus is speaking, right? Here I am. It is written to me about the, in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Because catching what's happening here is that it's attributing the, the Psalm of David, Psalm 40, which is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, and saying Jesus showed up to say, I'll do it. I know that the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats were not enough. I know it's not what you really needed. I'm here. And you've prepared my body for this very thing. Reading on, it says, verse 8, For he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Notice that. like They were offered in accordance with the law. There was an obedience. Like Praise the Lord. Like It's, it's an act of obedience. Still not enough. Still not enough. Verse 9 says, Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He, set, he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, 
We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What was the, let's just pay attention to the difference here. The language of the Old Testament here, when they're talking about all the previous sacrifices, it was like we did that year after year after year after year, and it reminded us of our sin, and yes, it was in obedience, but it still wasn't enough. So then when it comes to Jesus, he is the perfect sacrifice, and he stands up, does God's will, lives a perfectly righteous life, imputes, we use this language, he's imputed his righteousness to us, our sin is imputed on him, and he subs in and pays it. And the language then is that this has happened once for all. It is no accident, a little bit of church history, no accident that in AD 70, right after Jesus came and paid our sin debt, the temple is destroyed and the sacrificial system is done. Because Jesus got the job done. The once for all has been done. This is why we don't do sacrifices. This is why we don't need to. The once for all, it has been completed. Everybody with me? Cool. This is, so hopefully you've seen like there's this theme of atonement. Not just a theme. There's atonement all the way through the Old Testament leading up to Christ, who is the par excellence, par excellence atonement. So a couple of key points here. I just want to clarify a little bit about how this works. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cr- crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of of us all to fall on him. Reiterating that same passage in 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Fulfillment of that Isaiah 53 passage. Everybody with me? Seeing what's happening here is this idea of my sin is actually laid on Christ. His righteousness is given to me, and then he takes that payment on the cross. We could go into a great deal of detail on what all happens in the atonement. Um, We're going to kind of just take a note. That's in the notes that I sent out this week. But we talked about how his atonement takes away the sin of the world. He's dying for our sins. His blood redeems us, which means to buy back. There's all of these ways in which purification is brought. Everything that needs to happen, happens in the atonement. Cool? Here's the interesting thing. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the spirit or in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So the question here is we need to understand exactly how this atonement thing works. Um, so if you would, give a little bit of understanding, because there's a, a little bit of a... Um, There's a lot of theories on what this atonement is. And what we found is, especially in the more liberal or progressivist movement, not wanting to really think that this is a real sacrifice of sin, um, we've kind of come up with new ways to understand it. And it's bad. So I just want to point out, there are key things that have to be part of the atonement. So we can talk about what's called the Christus Victor view of atonement, where Christ has overcome sin. And I want to say, yes, he has. Praise the Lord. But usually when people teach what is called, quote-unquote, Christus Victor, it's because they want to avoid what we call penal substitutionary atonement. And normally I'll say, praise the Lord, Christ is triumphant over sin, but guess what? He also subbed in and paid the debt for us. If you don't get that, you don't get the atonement. 
yes, Christ has victorious over sin. And I could totally say, yes, I believe Christus victor atonement, but it's not really atonement. It's just, yeah, he conquered sin. Also got to believe in what we call penal substitutionary atonement. So I'm going to give us a quick overview. We see in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay the wages, right? Jesus had to die to redeem us from the power and penalty of sin. So we call it penal substitutionary atonement. It's just short for penalty. There was a penalty for our sin. Jesus had to pay it. Simple as that. That is the whole of the Old Testament gets to this. The New Testament gets to this. There was a penalty for sin. It had to be paid. Part of the atonement is Jesus is paying it. Actually, that is the atonement. Second key aspect here for the atonement is that it is substitutionary. Jesus actually takes our place. We see many times in Scripture the idea of God's wrath against sin. In fact, you might remember in other parts of the Old Testament, it's referred to as like the cup of his wrath. There's this language of like, it's like he's storing up his wrath. You might remember that in the garden when Jesus is praying, he says, if it's, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The idea is he knew not just that he was going to die and that was going to be painful and awful. That's not really what was bothering him. Little side note, lots of people have died. Lots of people have died by crucifixion. That wasn't the biggest thing. It's that God's wrath was going to be poured out. And Jesus is saying, the cup of your wrath, if possible, could, could that just, could it just pass? Like, if I could just not have that part. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He goes to the cross knowing not just that he was going to die, but God's wrath against sin, the sin of every one of the believing, was going to be poured out on him. That is the part that was awful. By the way, this is why we have looked into church history and there's these wonderful times, as painful as it sounds, where brothers and sisters in Christ were crucified in a similar manner to Jesus and they went to the cross rejoicing. Jesus didn't rejoice on the cross. In fact, he says, God, Father, why, why have thou forsaken me? And the idea is that the wrath of God was being poured out on. He was separated from the Father in that time, experiencing grief because of the wrath of God that none of the rest of us will ever have to experience, at least if we're believers, as we'll get to in a second. Everybody with me? Cool. So somebody had to sub in and take the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus did. So penal in that it's a penalty that he took, substitutionary in that he stepped in for us, and then it's atonement in that God's wrath against sin was satisfied. Romans 5 talks about this. We're restored back to God. This free gift comes, as we see in Romans 6.23, 1 John 2. Everybody following me? If someone comes along and tries to say, well, Jesus' death is more of an example, right? You know, he dies so that we can learn about sacrificing for others, and then God's honored in that. No! Yeah, sure, cool. Jesus, yeah, he's an example. And but that's not what the atonement is about. Jesus paid my debt and took the wrath of God. Don't cheapen what he did. And here's a little side note. What we've noticed is people get real uncomfortable with this stuff related to wrath and punishment. And so they'll say, you'll hear the progressivists say something like, oh, that just sounds mean. Couldn't we do it another way? And we already explained. No, it's not. there's not another way, right? But then they're very quick to say, well, hmm, isn't this like cosmic child abuse? Like God, the Father, punishment? I'm like, no, like 
Jesus went willingly to the cross. In fact, all of the Hebrews 10 passage goes on and on to talk about it. He's like, I have come to do your will. He's willingly doing the will of the Father and sacrificing himself. Um, I just, sometimes heresy is so flagrantly not there that it just, mm, I understand why Nicholas of Mira, from whom we get the St. Nicholas thing, Nicholas of Mira was a real guy. Uh, at Council of Nicaea, our best understanding is when Arius was teaching heresy, he actually punches him. Like, he, like, St. Nicholas, the real guy, Santa punched a heretic. And it's just the best thing, because I totally understand wanting to do that. <laughs> totally understand it. Anyway, reading on, key stuff here. Don't let anybody cheapen the gospel. Don't let anybody cheapen the atonement. Here's the other thing they'll very quickly do, is say, well, come on, is sin really that bad? So notice how the, it starts to unravel with, I don't like that God is angry. That doesn't seem like a God I would want to worship. And I'm like, yeah, probably because he's not your God. Probably because you are not really one of us. I'm just being really honest. Right? But you start pulling at that thread, and then it goes to like, well, then my sin's not that bad. And before you know it, it's an excuse of sin, and all these things are left in. This is why when we talk about false teaching in the New Testament, cheating related to money, sexual abuse, and false teaching, all three tend to go together. Because once you have started to pull at the thread, then it's like, well, this isn't that bad, and that isn't that bad, and now I've got to keep doing this. And before you know it, everything falls apart. Anyway. Atonement. So here's the key thing. So some people will say, well, if Jesus died on the cross, we're almost done here, by the way. If Jesus died on the cross, and he's God, and he's, he's powerful, and he rose from the dead, he can do all this, so surely his payment is big enough, everybody's saved, right? I mean, in fact, we see where it talks about, like, he died for the sins of the whole world. And so there is a, a group of people called universalists that will say, look, don't worry about it. It's all paid for. So, like, sin all you want. Don't worry about who believes and doesn't believe. That just makes people uncomfortable. It's covered. Don't worry about it. We call them universalists because they believe that universally everyone will be sin or will be saved. Um, want to just take a little note here in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. There's a whole bunch of places we could go. I happen to just, because I could go to a whole bunch of them. 2 Thessalonians 2.9-11 says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness, uh, that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish, listen to this, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. People, and by the way, this language of perish is eternal, right? They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. That's sobering. The language here is that God is actually, oh, so you're not going to love the truth? I'm going to actually put more delusion on you so that you believe the lie, so that you get the punishment you deserve. Side note, that verse right there makes a lot of Arminians really uncomfortable. <laughs> it makes me a little uncomfortable, and I'm a Calvinist, right? That's heavy. But God is saying, okay, you're not going to love the truth? I'm going to make sure you keep loving the lie so that you get the punishment you deserve. Let me just tell you, that's not universalism, brothers and sisters, no matter how we cut it. That's not universalism. It says, and so that they will be condemned who have not believed in the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Whew. That's heavy stuff right there, brothers and sisters. Um, this is why we say atonement is particular, right? And not everyone's going to be saved. While Christ's death is powerful enough to save everyone, the payment is made for only the believing. Uh, this is key. Yes, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. The idea is that every people group, anybody from anywhere in the world, can believe and be saved. 
If you're not part of the believing, you're not in. And so this is why, by the way, the language is particular atonement. Atonement actually means payment. It doesn't have, there's no indication that Christ's death was somehow limited or that he wasn't strong enough or that it wasn't powerful enough to pay. That's not the issue. Like you could imagine like Jesus having an infinite amount of dollars to pay a debt, but he's only paying the debts of those who come and say, yes, please, right? Um, arguably, it's a little bit more because from the foundation of the world, it says the lamb was slain and he knew exactly who was going to believe and there was a whole plan for this. And he gets into some theological topics that are uncomfortable, but the reality is like payment was made for the elect, for those who believe. That's how it works. There is no one who will not believe and somehow be saved. It's not how it works. Can maybe we realize then this makes evangelism really important? It's kind of what we're building up to in all of this. John 3.16, which most of us have memorized, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Belief is indicative. By the way, little side note, the language, we, we throw in whosoever in the translation because it works in English. The Greek actually says all the believing. The idea is that is there's a particular nature to it, that like everyone who believes will be saved. Yes, it's available to everyone, but I love the, the specificity that like, you get to have it. You get to believe and be saved. It's not just like, ah, eh, whatever, whoever goes in this door. It's like, you're in, and you're in, and you're in. The language is believe and be saved. It's specific. Praise the Lord. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are the fr- a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's interestingly enough, do you notice that like we're the fragrance of Christ both to the ones who are going to be saved and the ones who are going to be condemned? And in either case... God receives glory because we are bringing the good news. So this is what I'm hopefully bringing up to you. Hopefully there's clarity on here's how the atonement works. Here's what it is. Um, But brothers and sisters, what I am hoping happens here is that you get in your heart this understanding that the salvation that is from God is so powerful. It should hopefully, one, give you some confidence that like Jesus paid my debt. I'm good. I believe. I'm in. I don't have to worry. I'm confident in my salvation. My hope is that this, you don't doubt your salvation. Like, hey, you believe, you're in. And I, I like to even remind people that, like, you wouldn't believe unless you were in. Praise the Lord. You believe. You're in. Second, there should be some humility because you did nothing to earn it. Nothing. We've already talked about that, so I won't belabor that point. But the third thing is hopefully this gives you boldness. Like, I mean, if we could look out at the people and think about the fact that there are so many who have not heard the good news. And I have the opportunity to be the fragrance of Christ, both to the believing and the unbelieving. That I can proclaim the gospel and say, look at this great salvation that God brought and planned before the foundation of the earth. He's laid all this atonement stuff throughout the Old Testament. He's led up to this. Now we understand. Now we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. All of this is done. It's paid. This is good news. And there are going to be some that say, praise the Lord, I'm in. And some that say, I don't have anything to do with that. And in both cases, I am bringing glory to God because I'm the fragrance of Christ among them. What I'm hoping is that as a result of this, we say, man, I'm going to tell the good news. Um, so we got some more uh, sermons coming up along this topic. But my hope today is that you have confidence in your salvation and you have boldness to proclaim it and clarity on exactly what God has done. Everybody with me? Cool. All right, so um, I totally have forgotten who's on for 
presenting the gospel today? What's that? I did, I did just kind of, kind of, that was the whole sermon. Um, so here's what we'll do then. Um, whoever is on to kind of distribute communion, if some of the children want to help with that, um, let's begin distributing communion. And I'm going to bring this around. Everybody good for doing that? I know the Siegfrieds are on it. And then, yeah, girls, go and help Mrs. Siegfried uh, make that happen. I know, it's the first time I've said that. It's just, this doesn't sound the same, right? Um, what's that? It sounds very grim. Mrs. Siegfried. Um, so hopefully, so we've already communicated all this, and I want, I want to remind you that when Jesus first, um, first brought about communion, he talks about, like, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what's happening in communion is we are remembering the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Paul even says that every time you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaiming the Lord's death is a remembrance of the atonement. He is getting glory in this. And I would say, brothers and sisters, that there is something that's happening. I'm not a transubstantiationist. There's something special about remembering what God has done. I've noticed that unity seems to be built in the church as we take communion. Um, There's a refreshing in our spirit that happens. And so this is why in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives such a warning against taking communion flippantly. Please understand what you're doing. It's all right to celebrate. It's all right to be joyful. Um, It doesn't even have to necessarily be somber, right? But I'm bringing all this up. Thank you, little sister. I'm bringing all this up because God takes communion seriously. So if there is any sin in your heart right now, now is a great time to get it clear before we come before the Lord. And so I'm going to give a little bit of time as the kids are passing out the communion elements. Yeah. 